Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket, and I'm Joel Morris. This is the best of Comfort Blanket, which obviously not because the best of Comfort Blanket will be all of it. It's all so lovely. But these are some favourite moments from the first two series now that series two is finished. And while we're preparing series three, just to remind you of some favourite bits and maybe uh, send you to some episodes you might have missed or just remind you of some uh, some nice memories. Uh, maybe this could be a Comfort Blanket in itself. Who knows? Uh, thanks to everyone who's got in touch and so they've enjoyed the series, especially people who said that they are using it as a comfort blanket. And thanks, obviously, to all the guests who've come on for the past two series and been so amazing, sharing uh, quite intimate tales of how they relate to the things that they return to for comfort. So I've really, really enjoyed this. There's something lovely about sharing people's joy in things. So let's listen to some great bits from the Comfort Blanket Archive. This is the actor and writer Rufus Jones uh, talking about his theory about Raids of the Lost Ark and is secretly the reason this podcast exists because he told me this theory down the pub and I thought I might make a podcast series just so we can talk about this Raiders theory. So uh, thanks Rufus, you're the reason any of this happened. Yeah. It says to you at the beginning, the deal is you're going to watch something preposterous yeah. based on something which is moderately real, which is the Nazis were interested in this stuff, yes. um, and then plays games with it. Yeah. Um, this is also probably a good time to bring up my pet theory that Harrison Ford is the first and greatest Jewish action hero. Get back to Cairo. Get us some transport to England. Boat, plane, anything. Meet me at Omar's. Be ready for me. I'm going after that truck. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Harrison Ford's mum is Jewish, therefore he is Jewish. Matrimonial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it comes down to the mother's life. You, you initially never think of Harrison Ford as a uh, Jewish performer or a Jewish comedian, and yet he embodies a Jewish-American humour yeah. like no one else in the action genre. If you think about 1981, this is just on the cusp of you know, Schwarzenegger and, and yeah. Stallone ruling sort of action films for 15 yeah. years. And you have Harrison Ford, who, of course, is incredibly good looking, but he channels his inner klutz yeah. and his inner, uh, I think you used the phrase schlemiel, yeah. <laughs> like no one else. He is heroic, but he's not on steroids. No. And just when you see Indy getting cocky, something will happen, like every vine that he tries to swing on or grab breaks in this yeah. film. The, the, the he's mirror, Wiley Coyote. He's, yeah, he's, the he mirror must. smacking him that, yeah. that Marion sort of gets. <laughs> and, and he's such a funny physical performer, Ford. But then also his demeanour, because let's face it, in his later years, he's turned into Walter Matthau. And, um, yeah, yeah. and I am there every step of the way for that. <laughs> but, uh, but even back then, when we remember handsome, handsome Harrison Ford, he still has a lugubriousness. Yeah. And he is an indie when he first enters the temple. He is so unimpressed. There is just a touch of the 60s Florida housewife about him yeah. wandering in and kind of going, you know, these curtains, not for me. Yeah. And he's. <laughs> There's a, his, the first line, the first little exchange, it's yeah. a line I'd forgotten, and it's brilliant. Yeah. And it's Alfred Molina says, I was happy. There is nothing to fear here. Me. Yeah, and you go, oh, that's a great, that's great uh, sharp dialogue backwards and forwards, yeah. but it tells you everything about yeah. him. It's a great introductory line. It says, I'm worried because you're not worried enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the only thing is, I'm going to worry. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that makes him a schlemiel. You know how careful I am, bro. Yeah. He's a nervous man. He enters it not brave, but anxious. Just a touch of Larry David miserabilism. Yeah. You know, you know what's going to go wrong? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nazis, I hate these guys. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? It's not the years. It's the mileage. The iconic, it ain't the years, honey, it's the mileage. That's a Rodney Dangerfield line. I think version. do them all in the voice of Jackie Mason. And yeah, exactly. Works. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> it ain't the years, honey, it's the mileage. Exactly. That, it occurred to me, he is looking at the greatest archaeological find in history. <laughs> and all he can think about is the one negative. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they did it for me. I don't like snakes. Yeah. They got snakes in for me. Yeah, and yeah. all of it has got a lot. This happens to me again. Again, again with the snakes. This was a lovely session talking with the writer Pete Perfides about his love of Charles Schultz's classic comic strip Peanuts and how it taught him it was okay to be a beta male, if that's not too insulting. No, it's not. Charlie Brown, classic beta male. Uh, how it was cool to be a bit indie. Like I said to my kids, you know, whenever they were kind of worried about, you know, when their maths teacher was giving them a hard time, making it sound like being good at maths was the most important thing in the world. You know, just say, well, your maths teacher is ultimately just looking out for herself. She doesn't want her superiors to think she's a bad teacher, yeah. you know. Um, but you're, you are the most important thing. You know, when you go for that job interview, whenever that is, five, ten years down the line, you know, and it's between you and some other person, they're going to give it to the nicer person. They're not going to, mm. they're going to give it to the person they can imagine themselves being down the pub with, the person they can imagine themselves not being screwed over by. And those are all sort of... Uh, Things I can almost imagine, you know, Charlie Brown's father, who he was very close to, he was a, he was a barber, and, and uh, as Schultz's father was, uh, and he would go into the barber shop and just sit and wait for him to sort of cut the hair of the last customer, and then they would go home together. And there was this very, that's very much a reflection of Schultz's own relationship with his father. Um, you know, you are sort of gathering together that you're sort of, uh, you're kind of, your battle weapons, or at least your, your kind of armor to sort of help you through life. And you gather it together as a child through sort of art and culture. And so I sort of feel very lucky that I, I sort of had Peanuts and I had Charlie Brown. And I also had, like we said, things like Gregory's Girl and, you know, a journeyman kind of football team <laughs> that had sort of seen their... We all know, need a Schlobotnik. This is another one I got really excited about when I heard what we were going to be doing. And this is the comedian Mike Wozniak talking about his love for Spike Milligan's The Goon Show, which is a show that now gets regarded as an influence more than something people just sit and get enthusiastic about. So it was nice to sort of recapture a real joy of talking about Spike Milligan and the fun of absolute nonsense. You're, all you have to understand is that there, there's a bunch of characters you know and a bunch of performers who are your friends. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to do silly stuff. Yeah. That's the only structure. And I think that friends thing, that's quite a good word to use. Because I think people, there's a lot of enjoyment to get off just of being part of the feeling like you're, you're included, I think. Yeah. With the goons. They're having the time of their life, but you feel like you're part of it. I yes. Think. It is a club, the isn't it? feels like they're, you can tell it's through the audience, the audience in that theatre, they, they don't feel excluded. It's even, even when they, well, especially even when they get the giggles or things go wrong it doesn't feel like they're a sort of little clique that isn't going to allow anyone else to enjoy their fun and their special and there's no archness about no any of it it's just complete joyous burst of comic energy to which you're all invited and you want to spend time with this gang yeah and i think i mean that's what when i sort of started having daydreams about comedy that's i mean that's how i hoped it would be that's what i imagined it would be like love the idea of just you find this gang you find your gang and you play and you muck about and yeah. how it goes <laughs> how did it go again that, that was a good joke that, that, that wasn't a joke hey, 
Oh. It's called me. What do people talk about that with? I remember talking about with, with podcasts, mm. the intimacy of that, the, the, yeah. it's going into your ear. And someone said, well, sometimes all you want to listen to is some people who like each other having a chat. And that's a, that's the thing that hasn't been used that much for TV or radio for ages. Yeah, those which you can worry about as a podcast because you might think, "Well, hang on." I mean, I because I three being talented with Henry and yeah. Ben, you know, the, Henry was the one who wanted to do that in the first place. And, you know, Ben and I were saying, "Oh, well, no, it's just you know, it's just self indulgent nonsense." <laughs> who wants to listen to that? And that's, I think the worry of any podcaster that it might that kind of thing, if it's just have a listen to our chat is inherently self-indulgent but actually it turns out quite a few people do enjoy intimacy to it enjoy that and do you know and then the the listener does indeed become part of it they become integral to the podcast or whatever it is partly because you're aware they're there partly because they write into what and they're just part part of the world that gets built i think that's yeah it's got a lot in common with what people love about the the goons This one was a lovely surprise. This was talking to the author Jenny Colgan, who writes a lot of romantic fiction, but also writes sci-fi, and is a big space nerd, about the film Terminator, which she absolutely loves and goes back to for comfort, but weirdly not for her space side, but for her romantic side. And I thought it was a lovely reading of the film uh, and made it open up in ways I'd never expected. However, Arnie is not why this is my comfort film. What is it that, that makes you feel safe with Terminator? Well, I mean, I'm a romantic novelist, really, or I'm a, I write romantic comedies. So that's my job. And I love romance and romantic films. And for my money, this is the most romantic film that has ever been made. Was there someone special? Someone? A girl, you know? No. Never. Never. The fact that there is a big killer robot in it is very much a kind of side issue <laughs> to me. It's not by any means what I find interesting in this film. I memorized every line, every curve. I think it's a perfect time loop film of people who know things that they can't reveal, people that have been in love with other people for a long time and people who will risk literally everything. I came across time for you, Sarah. I love you. I always have. From the second Kyle Reese appears, he knows that he can't get out of it. He's volunteered because of one photograph that he's had his whole life. And reasonably early on, although it's never, it's mentioned in the first draft of the script, she tells him that, you know, there will never be anyone else for me. And this baby has to be yours because that's how much I love you. Uh, near the end in the smelting plant. But they took that bit out because obviously they could have it so that they could have it at the end. And that purity, it's a perfect... Do you know how long this film is, by the way? It is 102 minutes. Perfect. Yes. In other words, it's perfect. It seems that sometimes if you finish a film, as in choose the best bits, it's a better film. Almost the same. Anyway. Right. (laughs) It is a perfect time-sealed love story. It's as good as an example as you'll see with two exceptionally attractive people with nothing in common and yeah. everything to play for and I love it. I'm here to help you. I'm Reese, Sergeant Techcom, BN38416, assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. And I love T2 because it's a great film, it's hard not to, but it's, you know, it doesn't have the heart and the soul of T1. What's it like when you go through time? White light. Pain. It's like being born, maybe. This was a lovely chat with Tim Dunn, the railway historian and TV presenter. And Tim came over to talk about Metroland, John Betjeman's 1970s uh, documentary about the expansion of London and then Tim stayed we had fish and chips and he went into the street later on and showed me where the trams used to run because you can detect that by sort of I don't know uh, kneeling down the ground and smelling it like Tonto in the Lone Ranger anyway he can detect where transport's been it's amazing what a gift it's called Metroland it opens up with a sped up train journey you go oh it's going to be about trains yeah it's not about trains oh no he's on some trains he's following a train line but this is definitely about people and places and environments and stories. 
and eccentrics, and, but it's not about. He never talks about the trains. But what's interesting, I think, what what, what turned me on to railway history, I suppose, as a career later on, is the fact this whole program is based on the fact and this realization as a small child, you know, eleven year old, yeah. that everything that I did, everything that I existed around me, my family existed, everything existed because of a railway company. The Metropolitan Railway Company literally created and enabled everything around us from those years. And if I look at it now, and, and people, and it's funny how, you know, a hundred years later, the Metroland was created, as he says at the start of the programme, child of the first war, forgotten by the second, we called you Metroland. And after that, he starts explaining. And, and when you finish that programme, you realise it is these people in the boardroom, in this one railway company that had its headquarters at Baker Street, that have quite literally created and enabled the lives of millions of Londoners since. And and we don't really think about that and talk about this today because our lives are so busy and Metropolitan Line is, is, is perhaps, you know, not so important as it used to be in, in, in the daily life of so many people. Yeah. But this railway line and this company, these few men who are not elected in officials, you know, they, they, these are people sitting around a boardroom table like Watkin, they created the life. And if it wasn't for those people, I wouldn't exist because my grandparents met across the station platform at Ickenham. You know, <laughs> my parents, you know, went to Rysip Lido and met in a, a dinner dance there or something when they were teenagers and, and on, the, on the ceiling and their yacht and little dinghies on, on the lake. You know, all of this happened because of this one railway company. And that's what I realised at this point. So much, and Benjamin tells you in this programme, and he points out that everything up to those fields and the, in the wet fields that wouldn't pay, up to that point... Life has been enabled and created within living memory at the time by these people in a boardroom. And that is shocking. And that's what, that's what I think about when I look back at it and go, wow, wow. So many of us don't realise this now. And so that's what I wanted to do with the architecture programme. When you kind of go, do you know what? Actually, so many of us are actually a product of systems and transport and people that we don't really think about and that we are the consequence and our lives are consequence of things that have been laid down and my god then it suddenly becomes quite terrifying <laughs> steam took us onwards through the ripening fields ripe for development where the landscape yields clay for warm brick timber for post and rail through Amersham to Aylesbury and the Vale. In those wet fields, the railway didn't pay. The metro stops at Amersham today. This is a lovely one. This is talking to the children's author Nadia Sharin about her love of the Pet Shop Boys and their album Behaviour. When you're young, you find such inspiration in anyone who's ever gone and opened up a closing door. That yeah. might be my favourite, one of my favourite Pet Shop Boys lyrics. I find it so moving. When you're young, you find inspiration in anyone who's ever gone and opened up a closing door. She said we were never feeling bored. I found that inspirational. I found that line inspirational when I was 11 or 12 because... I was too young to yeah. really begin to figure out who I was. But that line made me realise that was going to happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you're young, you find inspiration. So I was like, I am going to be inspired by someone and they're going to open doors for me and I'm going to leap through them. And it was so, there's so much potential there. That's what I mean about my perspective shifting with this song. So when I was younger, it was like, Nadia, this is what life might turn out to be like. This is what lies ahead of you. You're going to yeah. find inspiration and you're going to find your path. That was so exciting. So I couldn't really feel too sad about the song because it was all there ahead of me. Now, of course, I listen back to it and I'm like, yeah, that's what happened. That's how I found myself. That's how I, that's the self-actualization that happened. You're finding a story in there that's a story of one particular person or two particular people, and you're finding your own story in there. Mm. And the possibility is there, just to go to what he was saying that, the person who gives you the inspiration 
is Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe. Well, I mean, yeah. They open the door. That massively. And all the, part as in, it. It has, it's, it's one of those meme things that within it is the idea that seeds more ideas. I was thinking about that, or listening to this on the, the way down to see you. I was listening to it thinking, there's something brilliant about the Pet Shop Boys in the way that Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe are pop stars. Mm. And Neil Tennant worked for a pop magazine and said, I'm going to be a pop star. <laughs> yeah. When he was 17 and we were a pop star, worked for a pop magazine, mm-hmm. at age 30 leaves and goes, I'm going to be a pop star. Mm-hmm. So everyone goes, what, you? Echoes from Marvel Comics <laughs> and Smash It, it's going to be a pop star. And he goes, yes. What kind of pop star are you going to be? This one. <laughs> yeah. What, you're going to stand there? And with your mate, it's going to stand behind you. Yes, we're pop stars. And just the sense of going, fuck you. Yeah. As in, of course, if he went out there and was the kind of pop star you thought he was going to be, mm-hmm. that would be ludicrous if he mm-hmm. pretended he was Simon Le Bon or something. Mm-hmm. The fact that they did it and went, we're going to make up our own rules for this. And what we'll do is we'll be ourselves. Yes. That is, you want to talk about an inspiration uh, to any creative youngster to pick a band who mm-hmm. went, we're going to go and go to number one. How? Uh, in a way that's never been done before. That's amazing. Well, and completely true to themselves. And I think I am not about to compare myself to the Pet Shop Boys. Okay, let's make that clear. However, I let was... That, let that be for everyone else to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. You, go, you guys go ahead, but I wouldn't do that. So funnily enough, we speak on a day where I've done a, a school's kind of festival visit. I'm a children's book author, illustrator. So... I am not someone who is comfortable on stage. I'm not comfortable performing. It's something I have had to do and I have to do as part of my job. Never expected to. And I was chatting to someone about it today saying, oh, I get very nervous. I don't really enjoy it in a way. But the key for me is I go on and I am absolutely myself. I don't go on and do jazz hands. And that works for me. And that is something that I've directly lifted from the best, from the greats, (laughs) because there's no point. I go on and I do a Chris Lowe. I just go on and go, hi, everyone. Yeah, it's me, honestly. In my clothes. In my clothes. Here I am. This is what I do. That is something I've directly lifted from them. One thing that happened is that suddenly we became performers. I had very little performing experience of music. And so it was a funny feeling of insecurity um, and self-consciousness. The Pet Shop Boys are my comfort blanket because they have been there for me as I have changed. And I remember seeing them. Every time I see them, I quietly say to myself, hiya, to them when they come on stage. I'm like, hi, hi, lads. (laughs) Are they your friends? Yeah, they're massively my friends. And obviously I can never be friends with them in real life and never... I did sort of meet them once, but I didn't say anything because I thought there's no point, is there? I always try and get together face-to-face to do these interviews rather than doing them remotely down the line, which became a habit during lockdown for a lot of podcasts. But the flip side of that is sometimes they take a long time to arrange. And this one, oddly, which is with Ben Wilbond, took ages. We were filming schedules uh, and there was COVID and we kept missing each other and making dates and it had to keep moving. But that did mean that by the time we got together... Uh, the subject which we were talking about, which is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a book and a TV series that, and a film that Ben's mad for, we'd had a chance to really get steeped in, to watch it properly. I think I'd watched bits of it twice. Uh, and we'd been thinking about it a lot and chatting to each other uh, online and on messages about it. So by the time we got together, uh, we'd had loads of prep time, which is rare for a podcast. And we'd been thinking about it. And I knew what Ben's take was going to be, which I thought was amazing. And I'd not heard anyone say before, but it was lovely. It was a real privilege to uh, share that with him and to get his reading of Tinker Tailor, which is all about the establishment and the cruelty of public school and the elites that run us. And it turned into something, I think, quite lovely and definitely something very honest. And uh, it was a privilege to make this one. I really, really enjoyed this. And I started reading Tinker Tailor again and just fell in love with it again. It it will forever, I think, for me, be a book that I can just go back to and just absolutely dive into. Very early on in, in, in the novel, we meet, Prido much earlier and it's sort of it's actually a brilliant narrative device because you're just asking all these questions about who the hell is this guy why have we started in a school why have we started in a school <laughs> and I read again the um, Jim Prido at the school he becomes a an object of absolute fascination for the boys why doesn't he look this way something funny about that here's a bunch of boys burning up a car around a playing field and he doesn't even give them a glance you would wouldn't you yes sir doesn't he like boys? Doesn't he like cars? Doesn't even look at that car. Best Britain ever made and years out of production. Because he lives in a little caravan. Yeah. 
uh, on the edge of the playing field, but in a natural dip, it says in the book, where actually it'd be very hard for anyone to sneak up on him. And you, you start to think, oh gosh, this guy is quite interesting. You know, he's, yeah, yeah. he's had some training, da, da, da. And of course, the boys, all being nine, ten years old, they are absolutely enthralled by this mysterious man who's just come out of nowhere as a sort of French supply teacher. And yeah. he becomes very attached to this one young chap who clearly is the young chap who's being bullied the most and he's not sporty and Jim becomes very protective of him and I just I remembered it it, it sort of distantly in my memory of, of reading the book the first second time whatever 20 years ago coming back to it I realized how resonant it is of of being at these schools and these institutions and there's a little passage that I'll read to you now and it's all about um the tragedy of being abandoned as a nine-year-old in an institution where uh, people accepted it at the time, going, well, of course, they're just going to boarding school. It's fine. Yeah. Because they'll be back at the weekends and they'll be back or they'll be back for half term and Christmas. or whatever. No, no, no. You are telling your child that you don't love them. Yeah. And you're putting them in an institution where there are dangerous people. And if they are bullied, then that will just really exacerbate the trouble that they will have. It's the insanity of, of the elite, the very, very rich, putting their kids through an experience that if it was on a charity appeal mm. on the television, yeah. would raise loads of money. These children have been abandoned by their parents. Well, it's like, it's like a Romanian orphanage. <laughs> it's well, it's, well, it is that level, and it's, it, it is, actually. It has the You're same You're paying for effect. a huge privilege to put your children through basically what people go through in war. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what you know, refugees are going through right now, as we speak. You know, yeah. There are children... Separated, and they will never re recover from They that. will be traumatised by the best uh, brutal bullies that money can buy. We know now that it it is the opposite of what you should do <laughs> with, with children who are, by their very nature, vulnerable because yeah. they are eight, nine years old. Yeah. Anyway, so Le Carre spends a lot of time talking about this uh, young boy who Predo sort of marks out because he knows in his heart that this boy is being bullied and he knows this boy is not the most athletic and he takes him under his wing and it's it's done quite nicely in in the tv show but obviously they don't have the time to do it yeah. in the novel you really start to feel for how lost predo is how and how lost the boy is and how you know you just go oh it's it's the boy and the man and they are one and the same beautiful and so the little boy bill thinks he's he's at this one moment he thinks he's betrayed Jim because his world is so small and he thinks he's done something yeah. and Jim is acting oddly and this passage really leapt out at me uh, it, it basically Bill is is uh, ruminating on how special Jim is clearly Bill is looking for a kind benevolent parent yeah. to step in and tell him everything's going to be fine and Le Carre writes this wonderful really evocative for me because I remember doing it as a child after I'd been abandoned going who who's going to look after me who's yeah. going to watch out for me so it, it so Bill says well Le Carre says of Bill he rehearsed the circumstances of their first meeting and in particular Jim's inquiry regarding friendship and he had a holy terror that just as he had failed his parents in love so he had failed Jim largely owing to the disparity of their ages and that therefore Jim had moved on and was already looking somewhere else for a companion, scanning other schools with his pale eyes. He imagined also that, like himself, Jim had had a great attachment that had failed him. And you just go, <laughs> "Oh my God, that's it! That's it!" In a in an absolute nutshell, it's talking to that, talking about these terrible schools, and talking about uh, this little boy Roach's place in that school and his and his yearning for attachment and his. Telling, telling the reader that when you go to these institutions, it feels like your parents have said, we don't love you anymore. You're in the family unit, but we do not love you yeah. because you have to go here now. We don't, you, you literally mean nothing to us. So go and sort yourself out. This is rejection. Utter rejection. So this little boy is casting around for, he's found this attachment in Jim, who's just this wonderful man who's come into their lives and is being more than a father figure, like allowing them to play in his car yeah, and yeah. showing them secrets and, you know, being not like the institution. Yeah. And 
now he fears that he's lost him too. And his and in his little brain, his little boy brain, saying maybe he's going to look at other schools and maybe he's going to find another me yeah. in another school and maybe I'm not good enough. And that, for me, is basically encapsulates what happens to you as a child at one of these schools. You just, your whole life is spent thinking, well, I'm not good enough. I'm yeah. not good enough for any attachment. So why do I bother? Well, there's a bit of the end. Read it. In my heart, I'm free. Deep inside me burns a new and blessed light. I used to think that the secret world was a separate place and I was banished forever to an island of half people. But God has shown me we have only to open the door and step outside to be free. Lawrence, you must always long for the light which I have found. It is called love. Now I shall take this to our secret place while there is still time. And then you don't trust. And then you don't trust. And then you've got a novel here about not trusting. Right. And it's just about what happens, betrayal and not trusting. Exactly. How enormously clever. That is Mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant. Layered. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This was a chat with the writer Kathleen Moran about the bridal makeover show Curvy Brides Boutique. We talked about feminism and body image, expectations of marriage and weddings, uh, clothes shopping, all those sort of things that are very, very important. I also found out that you can record in someone's kitchen while there's work on outside. If you point the microphones in the right direction, cross your fingers and hope. They have been completely screwed up by their body image. They have never felt like a princess and they are now trying to live their lives through their daughters. And then you pull back from that and you go, oh my God, all of society was complicit. And hopefully in 27 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) We can fix this. Yes, all of society's ills will have been fun. When this girl walks through the doors of the dressing room and goes, I look pretty. And that's often the key moment. You will see a girl looking in the mirror for the first time and smiling and going, I look pretty. And she will say it in a voice that is unused and cracks yeah. slightly and is dusty and you go that's the sentence you've never said before isn't it yeah you've never said that this is the first time that you've ever looked in the mirror and smiled oh my god you look stunning <laughs> it's beautiful isn't it yeah it's really beautiful you don't look sold mum no I'm getting emotional that's I do actually love that length I just want to ask you how you feel. I want you to describe how you feel. I feel beautiful. That's it. That's it. And I, I've, I've been a big girl. I'm still not a small girl. I come from a big family. I have a lot of big friends. And I know women who are now in their 50s who have never looked in a mirror and said that. So ostensibly, you're just watching someone buying a dress for their wedding day. But what you're actually doing is seeing women having an emotional experience that they've never had before until they're in that room putting that dress on. And that's why I keep coming back to it, because there's such relief yeah. in seeing a girl for the first time look herself in the eye in the mirror and smile and go, oh, I look really pretty. This is my dress. The format is hinged on the phrase, is this the dress? Yes. Or this is the dress. There's, a, there's almost a format point where the, the women say, is this the dress? And you know what the subtext is. It's not, is this the dress? It's, is this you? Yes. Is this the girl? Yes. Is this the woman? Yeah. Open your eyes. I'm a sheep. So this is actually you, this is a dress, not a miracle. I think that's the bit I'm finding hard. There is a complete stranger 
Looking back at me, I didn't recognize that person. I've never seen that person before. It's like putting on an alien suit. Look how amazing you look right now. And because of the thing that's unsaid, and the response is the response we get, oh, there I am. Yeah. I had a punch in the tear ducts. I cried and I knew the music was coming up. You knew it was coming. But that is this address. And the girl says, yes. Yeah. And you know, because of the way the format works, she's, you've seen her put on two or three dresses that don't make her feel like the princess she dreamed of being or the pretty girl she dreamed of being. It's fuck all to do with the dress. Yes. It's to do with the mirror. Well, also, you can tell as well, like once you've watched a couple before they've said anything, you know if it's the dress or not, because you watch their eyes. Yeah. And when they come out in a dress that they don't like, that they feel fat or awkward or ugly and or not themselves, they will just look at their face. They will not look down. And when they step out and it's the right dress, they'll look at their face. And then you can see they they feel brave enough for the first time to go down, to like go down and scan their whole body and then look back up again. And like you can tell again that that is a, a, a journey that their eyes have not taken before. They've looked at their whole body. And I was looking at interviews with Joe and Ali. So the so the Curvy Brides Boutique is run by Joe and Ali, who are two. Their size and their weight fluctuates. They've both been really big girls in their time. They've lost weight. They've put weight on and stuff. So they're totally there with the whole journey. Yeah. And they're like a non-judgmental Trini and Susanna. Yes, they're, they're from that format. But there was something about them, and it might just be me growing up where I grew up. I went, oh, aunties. Yes, um, they're basically Essex aunties. And you know that fifty percent of what they'll say in a day is go on girl that's a bit of you like it's all positive stuff and you know that they would sit around the tail slagging off bad men and bad mothers <laughs> there's also a very there's a, a recurrent trope that you'll notice in the show that when they so say they're diff- dealing with a difficult mother who's got ideas about what this dress should be they'll sort of give each other some eye contact and be like we should go and talk about this in private and then they go outside into the little decking area of the Curvy yeah. Brides Boutique and there they will very overtly drink a glass of orange juice but clearly they don't usually drink a glass of orange juice yeah. out there they've got the Rothmans out like the <laughs> extra long ones probably in a holder and they're chain smoking going that without the cameras there chain smoking going that mother is a bitch we have got to cut her dead with the cameras there glass of orange juice and like I can see there are problems with the mother (laughs) we're gonna have to tackle her first I was delighted when uh, the film TV and music critic Andrew Mayle suggested doing Star Trek the original series uh, and treating it as a sort of audio visual bath uh, comforting by what it sounds like and looks like. And weirdly, I think the day we did it, he'd been talking to Patty Smith, who'd said, yeah, exactly the same thing. Uh, she loved Star Trek because it was this big bath of sound. So this was us talking about what Andrew thinks and what Patty Smith thinks about Star Trek. So there was very much kind of that state of childhood where everything is a bit fuzzy and psychedelic and you're not entirely sure what you're watching. <laughs> and the main thing that you remember from Star Trek is the opening titles and the end titles. Yeah. So you remember the scary green face and you yes. remember the music and you remember it almost as an auditory trip. It, yeah. It's a kind of psychedelic experience. So <laughs> even before I knew what I was watching, the, the colours of it and the sounds of it were kind of part of my DNA. And then in the, I think it would have been the early 80s, they started showing it as part of kind of the young people's programming on BBC Two. And on BBC Two now, Captain Kirk and his crew could be forgiven for thinking they're the victims of a time warp. So the idea that the news would start on BBC One and then you'd go upstairs and watch your portable if you were, you know, yeah. if you were me. And it would be like some kind of youth TV and then they would show Star Trek. And so it became a way of decompressing after school. I found school quite stressful. I wasn't, wasn't particularly popular at school. And kind of so to come home and to then to rediscover this thing that was already part of my DNA that I'd grown up with as a kid, to find that I could then watch it in terms of story and watch it in terms of character, but that it still had these comforting sounds that I remember from very early childhood. So there was something very womb-like about the sounds. There was something very protective about them, something very calming. It's what people would now call ambient. There was an ambient bed throughout the whole of Star Trek. The sound that, of sort of the, the, the bridge beeps and the, yeah, the door and, whooshes. And, 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 and the door whooshes and, the, you know, the fact that obviously the creator, Gene Roddenberry, he, he'd been in the war and he'd kind of, you know, come out with this idea that in order for something to be convincing, it needed to have those sounds of sonar and radar yeah. and everything. So he brings those in. But once you remove them from context, they actually just become something very soothing. They almost like kind of the kind of music that you'd put on for a child or a dog, so there's a puppy when it comes home yeah. for it to fall asleep. It's a non-narrative so, element of it that I think is really important. I think people talk about, especially 
these kind of things, science fiction and things, because of Star Wars and the hero's journey and things, they always talk about these things in terms of epic narrative and heroes and things. And you go, well, some of it's about a bath. Yeah, Some of it's absolutely. about losing yourself in a place. And I remember seeing when they brought back Star Wars for trailers at the cinema, when they sort of said they were going to remaster it or whatever it was in 1997, that the reaction of the audience wasn't about the story. It was about the sound of the breathing and yeah. the laser gun noises. And you realise that for all the fuss people make about the soundtracks of science fiction, the John Williams thing, mm. the Wagnerian idea of using sort of late motifs and having a theme for each hero thing. There's also the sound effects. The sound of the bridge, the sound of the medical bay, the sound of beaming down. Sometimes it's really funny when someone picks something and then feels immediately embarrassed they've picked it because either it's too obvious or it's too far in their DNA or well, I can't talk about that, it's too much part of me. Uh, and then they try and pick something cleverer and more cerebral and you have to stop them and say, no, go with your first gut. What was the first thing you chose? Uh, and this was talking to Ingrid Oliver, the actor and writer, about her love, her unthinking love for the goons. I was in love with Sean Astin. I think that's that was a, that was quite key. That was your I, way I thought in. Sean Astin was... He's, so dreamy. He's lovely in He's this. so cute. It's really Samwise, nice. Oh, Samwise Gamgee. But him, little tiny things, giving him a little asthma inhaler is a beautiful touch. Do you know what? You're watching it again this week. I was like, oh, he's got an asthma inhaler. I had an asthma inhaler in Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Excuse me. I'm going to need my inhaler. I so hate it when I get one with a defect. Oh, it's it, So my, my character in Doctor Who was called Osgood and she, in that way that when sometimes people write a character that they want to be slightly vulnerable yeah. or people to underestimate or something, you, you give them an inhaler. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that's a sort of trope, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and also because most writers have that. That's yeah, why you I, mean, I did. Were you indoors a lot? Yes. Yes, but I mean, I, I had I had asthma as a, as a child, which then me too. Cleared up asthma club, later. there you asthma go. Club, yay! Yeah, childhood um, asthma, really. Yeah, fun. people in, people who watched it said I didn't use the asthma inhaler properly. I was like, I definitely did because I definitely used to use one when I was a kid. Oh. Um, but but yeah, watching Sean Astin, I was like, oh yeah, asthma club. <laughs> I, I I may I think I was channeling uh, Sean Astin in Doctor Who. It's a great prop because you can use it like a pipe. <laughs> yeah, and, for, and 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 actually in the Goonies. Well, which is probably maddening for people with asthma. They sort of go, it's it's a sign that he's mollycoddled by his mother, which is why you get the sense that he's not really allowed out very yeah, much. Yeah. He's, he has no life of adventure because um, his parents are worried that he's not physically strong enough. So it's, of course, about his internal journey that he, he goes, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to have an adventure. Yeah. And he gets braver and stronger as it goes on. And by the end, I think in the in the last scene, he he's, he's about to go for his, and every, and every time he's scared all the way through the film, he gets the inhaler yeah. out. And in the last scene, he he gets his inhaler out and looks at it and he went, ah, he goes, nah, nah, and throws it over his shoulder as though he's suddenly cured of his his lung condition (laughs) Um, just by being brave. Um, That's all it requires. Yeah. What it says is that people with asthma are cowards. (laughs) message. Fat people need to be bullied and people with asthma are cowards. Exactly that. Powerful message for children everywhere. <laughs> God, it's actually an awful film. My yeah. God. I'm so sorry. I'm so you sorry, it. yeah. This one just came out of curiosity because I was talking to the TV critic Julia Rayside, who I happen to live with because she's my wife. And she is a huge fan of Made in Chelsea. And I thought it'd be fun to talk to a professional TV critic about a show that she genuinely loves and hasn't missed an episode of that is perceived as quite trashy. And I thought, how does it work? Why is this a good one? Uh, and we ended up talking about TV production techniques quite a lot because Julia used to work in telly and about how television uses and possibly abuses ordinary people when it tries to turn them into constructed entertainment. We stopped watching things like the X Factor and things like that because you said this is uncomfortable watching these millionaires sneer and manipulate uh, people without their knowledge. Yeah, and because I used to work in TV, when I first left uni, I got lucky. I had a boyfriend who already lived in London. Otherwise, London rents were completely beyond me. I didn't have that kind of money. And I got a job in TV because uh, I'd done some work experience the summer before and I was paid like 300 quid a week, which was not enough to live in London even back then. Just like Classic not at telly. all. Te- terrible money. But I was I was one of the lucky ones. So I was considered privileged. I got to have the effectively financial backing of living with someone who already lived in London. Yeah. And I got to have a job in TV. And I was surrounded by very educated, mostly white, upper middle and middle class people who also had that privilege. And by the time I finished working in TV, not two years later, because I found it all a bit much... I had heard these very educated, privileged people who were, I was, it was the kind of TV where we were, we weren't doing constructive reality, but we were doing 
documentary series for like ITV and Sky. And, and it was basically you were surrounded by people going, are you going to put me on the telly? Oh my God, are you going to yeah. put me on the telly? Is my mum going to see me on the TV? This was the people of a class who would otherwise go into football. Just, just, just people who wanted to escape whatever they thought they weren't enjoying about their normal lives. They thought TV was better. And you'd see the stars appear in their yeah. eyes when you said what you did for a living and then, and then watch them fall over themselves and basically lose all their judgment in order to get on camera. And I think that relationship between the privileged people and the, the people who want to get on television always made me uncomfortable. And now when I see it kind of writ large in things like the Simon Cowell vehicles, literally millionaires sat behind a desk being rich kind of laughing at and humiliating people who just want to get out of their lives because they're miserable and they want to be famous and they want to be rich like them. Um, yeah, it makes me massively uncomfortable. It's a bit Hunger games is isn't it? It, it, it's, it really is. And, we've, and I hate to use this word, but we have normalised it. Our society now, I never thought we'd get here where it, most of the layers of, of acceptability have been removed now. And it is, it's just really rich people going, what do you think you're doing here? You're embarrassing yourself. Get off the stage. And, and those people who are on the stage have been told by producers, we think you're really good. We're going to put you in front of the millionaires. And it's, it's just, it's, it makes me sick. That was made very clear by that uh, horrible and uh, troubling Jeremy Kyle documentary recently. Right. Everyone is desperately making this thing, using as its meat, as its fodder for the factory. Yeah. Very often very poor or lower socioeconomic group people who are desperate to be on television. Which makes them vulnerable and it makes the producers effectively predatory because they're trying to make good television. And whatever they talk about, whenever they talk about safeguarding, I think now it's a hundred times better than it was when I worked yeah. in TV. But when I worked in TV, I heard producers saying, you know, okay, bring in the pond life. They have no respect. It was almost like when you send people to war, you need to dehumanise the <laughs> yes. enemy. So you have to see them as like non-people. Right. And again, that culture has changed now but not so much that I think safeguarding is at the top of their list. They've done a lot of performative stuff that when Love Island came back after the tragedy of yeah. Caroline Flack's suicide and then two contestants from Love Island, you know, that show has a body count and they're still making it. So they made a big noise about safeguarding huge press releases saying this is what we're doing. You get 14 months of, you know, contact with producers, 18 therapy sessions when you come back. It's like, if you need this after you've been on a show like this, Stop making the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that important. This was a lovely natter that I had with the artist Zara Hussein about the sitcom Frasier, which her family had gone mad for, uh, including her kids. And I love the idea of young kids getting into something sort of arch and adult as Frasier. But um, yeah, she had some amazing stuff to say about that, particularly about class and about Frasier as a, the, a sitcom about class mobility and also the important things it had to say about family and love. And it was nice to sort of rescue Frasier from its reputation for being a brittle farce and find something um, maybe a lot softer in it. I think it's universal. And I think when you drill down and think about it and you really understand it, it's about family and it's about relationships and it's about love, you know, love between a father and a son, love between two brothers and the eternal quest, the human quest to find love. And that's really profound. And that's all great literature, all great yeah. music, this desire to be loved and to love. And that's there right through the heart of it. Even though it is a very funny, very enjoyable comedy show, the heart of it is, is about those things. And I think that's what makes it special. You heard that? We're chopping in rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> we are, aren't we? <laughs> dum, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum. Da, dum. Hard and so I fell in love with you Hard and so The way a fool would do Madly Because you held me tight And stole a kiss in the night <laughs> What you're questing for there and it's, it's summed up by that Fraser quote that you came out with with him saying you want someone to do this journey with Yeah, is what you want is safety Yeah, um, You're feeling vulnerable yeah. You're feeling exposed. You're feeling like you're in danger. Yeah. And at the core of that is when you feel you're in danger, then to know someone loves you. Yeah. To know that person's there. It's why it's so heartbreaking to lose a love. Yeah. Or to lose a partner, to, to, to be widowed or whatever. It's so heartbreaking because the one place you can go for safety has gone. Yeah. And what these people are is they're kind of adrift. Yeah. And they're looking for someone to keep them safe. And in a way, what you're watching is these people who've surrounded themselves with the trappings of safety. Yeah. Money, success. Because 
Fraser is a vain, pompous person yeah. who thinks that by constantly quoting, I have a radio show, he'll get yeah. a seat at a restaurant, <laughs> that he will be accepted because of the stuff he's got. Ooh. This has been carefully chosen. This is an eccentric, yeah. curated room. That's not enough. You're on your own. The thing You're that lonely. jumps out to me 20 years on from when I first watched it, and this is very Asian, is the fact that he does look after his dad. <laughs> and you know what? That's so incredible. And as, an, as a person now who's, whose parents are older, and we're, you know, we're thinking about what are going to be in the next five or ten years. How are we going to navigate? Yeah. Parents getting older. What's going to happen? That's a massive, huge thing yeah. to have a parent live with you because parents are difficult. I took the liberty of checking out a few convalescent homes for him. Miles, a home? He's still a young man. Well, you certainly can't take care of him. You're just getting your new life together. Absolutely. Well, besides, we were never simpatico. Of course, I can't take care of him. Oh, yes, yes, of course, of course. Why? <laughs> because Dad doesn't get along with Maris. Who does? Yeah. And, and that's a profound and beautiful act of love for his father, despite the fact they don't get on, despite the fact they rub up against each other. Yeah. And he pays for his personal care assistant. He's the really good, dutiful Asian son. <laughs> he is. Well, then we're agreed about what to do with Dad. Golden Acres. We care so you don't have to. It says that. Well, it might as well. Because he's that, not secure. That because resonates actually, with everybody. He's not secure where he is. There's a there's an odd thing with the fact that Niles says there's no way I'm looking after mm. him. Because Niles is securely in the aristocracy. Yeah. He's settled with yeah. Maris. Maris would not let it happen. No. Maris, it's it's non-negotiable. Yeah. Uh, and it's played beautifully with the way the brothers yeah. talk to each other. When yeah. the, the opening setup of the, the show yeah. is, this is what the, the show's about, is who gets dad. One of them says, there's no way I'm having dad. The other one goes, well, I suppose I have to have dad. And, and you can see it as you get old, this is like, <laughs> I keep on going on, I'm going, but I feel old at the moment. The thing is, you, you didn't see it when you were in your 20s watching it. You no. didn't see the profundity of that action and how big a deal it is. Yeah. And anybody who has looked after a parent who's older and been there for them, even not have them in their house, but gone to check up on them once a week and, you know, phone them up every day. And, and, and you, the roles reverse where the parent looks after you and then you look after the parent. Yeah. And there's a really, really nice line as well where he just acknowledges what his dad he said you know dad was out every day earning money putting food on the table and he was a good dad and it's kind yeah. of those are the kind of the really sweet moments in Frasier alongside all the laughs and all the comedy you think this is this has got heart and this is something that everybody will get because everybody's going to go through this you're going to be a kid yeah. you're going to have a parent your parent's going to get old and you're going to have to deal with whatever happens to that parent and that next stage of life and and we're perhaps at that stage now, but in our 20s, we just saw it as a ha-ha funny. Yeah. I never even really reflected on the fact that his parent lives yeah. in his house. And you think, could I do that? I love this one. This was a chance to pick a video game, which we hadn't done before. And this was me talking to Ellie Gibson, the podcaster and scummy mummy and former games journalist about the game Animal Crossing New Horizons, which came out at the beginning of lockdown and became a massive hit because it seemed to form a place of comfort where people to go and hide when the world was really chaotic. So we talked about that. We talked about when you find a place to hide and how games can really help. Obviously, the podcast is called Comfort Blanket. You know that. Mm. Uh, and I've listened to a lot of episodes. I really like it. And I okay. like... and and. You know, it feels like the definition is a comfort blanket is something you go back to, isn't it, yeah, yeah. for comfort? Now, I hadn't played the game since lockdown, right. really. And I obviously went back to it for this because I'm very diligent. Good, uh, professional. And wanted to try and think of some jokes. So I went back to it and played it. <laughs> and I've played it and it's fine. And if I'm honest, I feel like maybe I shouldn't have. You, look, you can cut this out of its brilliant premise of your podcast. I don't know if I will go back to it. And I feel sad because it was such a great comfort blanket to me at the time. That's why I picked it for this podcast, because I remember it as this hugely comforting, warm, yeah. cosy thing. And now the world's moved on and I've moved on and I've done quite a lot in it. I've got my big house. I've got my little, you know, my stuff, my nice out. I don't know that I, it might be of its time. Are you, you know sad what? you invited me? No, I was about to say, I went back to have a look, partly because I've been nagged because it's my birthday. And I went back and went, I don't know what I saw in this. Mm. Now, obviously, it is a brilliant game. And I quite like the fact that it's got an interesting relationship with addiction because it was addictive. I couldn't stop mm. playing it. I was like you. 
In fact, I think you were the first person I know who said this is brilliant, and I think I got it for for, for the family. Sorry, you, so sorry. No, no, you you're, you're, you were the pusher, uh, mm. and you said you're like nicotine, and you, you you got me into the dangerous <laughs> thing. But I just I um. So I played it and I, it was an obsession to the extent that we had to buy a second handset for my wife because she was on it so much that it caused fights. Um, I played it as well and I've been playing it this week and gone, oh, it's all right, but it's got limited play value. And I think it was designed to have that. It's designed to be a small, non-addictive dip in and dip out game that you could drop in. And I think it must have taken them by surprise and really interviews with them. I think it did. And they went, People are playing it all day. And I think we exhausted it. I yeah. don't think it was it was... But it's got a lovely feeling. If we're talking about it as a toy, it feels like going up in the loft and pulling down a toy that you loved. I'm yeah. really, I mean, it's like a toy story. I'm feeling a bit sentimental. But a play set or a little, little garage with some cars yeah, in or a doll's Brushing house. off the cockroaches. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> it feels like that. And you go back and go, this was really important mm. for a bit, but I don't know if I need it anymore as yeah. much as I did. Yeah. I'm with you. And, and and that's not to say I don't need something to fulfil the purpose it serves. Yeah. I definitely, I, I thought about the games I've played since Animal Crossing and I've played a lot of games that uh, it might be similar in theme or structure or platform, but they serve a similar purpose, which is to, I like games often that are about putting things in order and, and fulfilling a task. So I like, I really liked Farmville when that came yeah. out. I played a lot of Heyday. I played a game called Everdale, which is where you have a little village. But that's, what we're talking about is a, is a game that's not only is it a good game in its own right, but it fulfills a need. It occupies a gap. Mm. Something you go, I need to have a place I can go to that's like this. And I think maybe what makes Animal Crossing a magical one of those is it came along at a time where people went, I am desperate. I'm in a weird, psychedelically unusual, this will never happen again state mm. of distress. And whatever, it was that year's Airplane Chefs. Yeah. And thank God it was really good. Yes. Because, I mean, if you're like you or me, I threw myself into it completely. But at that moment, I don't think I needed anything more. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a hunger for that comfort, whatever it could provide. And, and how lucky I'm grateful I am that we, that we had that and that it did that for me. And sometimes I think... It, sometimes things maybe look a bit weird with perspective, but at yeah. the time, like, so when my son Joe, he's he's seven now, right, and he's super yeah. healthy, that's the headline story, because <laughs> everyone, everyone makes a face, put their heads on the side, yeah. but he was born two months early. Right. Um, and obviously that was incredibly stressful, and he nearly died, and he was in hospital for six weeks, and it was awful. And then he survived, and he got home, and not the most difficult bit, but then this whole new difficult bit started after we got home, because when you have a premature baby, for me anyway... Um, you're like you're in this awful horror film, and then if you're lucky enough, like I was, to have a happy yeah. ending, it's like, oh, it's the end of the film, and everybody, including you, is like, brilliant! It's the end of the film. It's the end of the horror yeah. film. Now the happy film starts, and now it's all fine. But of course, it, it doesn't really, because you've just been through a huge yeah. car crash event, and you're breastfeeding, and you've, in my case, you've got another child, and nobody's having any sleep, <laughs> yeah. and you feel crackers, and you haven't really processed what you've all been through. There's trauma. Yeah, your your family is, has been fractured yeah. um, in ways that you don't really understand and you're too sleep to process a minute. So all of that. And um, I did read The Life-Changing Magic of Marie Kondo <laughs> several times and chucked out a lot of stuff and put a lot of my stuff in order. And at one point I labelled all the shelves in my fridge freezer. <laughs> so like dairy and meat yeah. and vegetables, not obsessively to the point where I had to do I I didn't get upset if someone didn't put things away properly or it wasn't like Vegetables that. A to C, <laughs> D to F. <laughs> I do have an alphabetized spice drawer okay, to this good, day, good, good. but that's another story. But um, that's just for convenience. Um, but my best friend, Jessie, who I've known all my life, she said to me years later, she was like, I knew you were in trouble because I didn't know I was in trouble. As yeah. well. I didn't know I was mad. I was too busy just getting through the day. She said, I knew you were in trouble when I came and opened your fridge and you'd labelled all the shelves. And I said, well, but why didn't you say anything? And mm. she said, because I knew that that's what was getting you through. Yes. That was your coping mechanism. She said, why would I have taken that away from you? It might have been crackers, but it wouldn't have hurt. It wasn't hurting anyone else. Sorry. Yeah, that's the most amazing thing. Sometimes it's not... You talk about a comfort blanket. And I was just thinking about it. I was trying to think, it's not a comfort blanket. It's more like a life raft. And I went, no, it's not a comfort blanket. It's one of those blankets they put around you when you're cold. Yeah. Those ones you put around you when you're shivering. Like what, when the you're... shit space ones are really yeah. crackly. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those where, you, where, where basically without it, 
you might shake, you might be in distress. It's a, it's it's that sort of comfort. And yeah. sometimes the weirdest thing can be what you need when you're traumatised. Yeah. And no, I don't have labels in my fridge anymore, but I do have an alphabetised spice drawer. And, you know, I do still, sometimes I lay awake at night thinking, should ground cumin go under G or C? But the point yeah. is, if, you know, you know someone who's playing Animal Crossing for 70 or 80 hours a week, like you and I were, why take that away from them? Maybe, maybe it's the only thing keeping them. Maybe it's all they have. <laughs> but they'll grow out of it. One of the things that inspired this podcast was a feeling of, having got through the pandemic and lockdown, wanted to meet up with people again. So it was an excuse really to get in touch with friends and say, do you want to come and talk about something that makes you happy? Maybe something that got you through those weird, isolating years. Um, so a lot of the people we've had on have been friends. Uh, and then just recently I thought, well, hang on, maybe I could get in touch with some people who I don't know, but who helped me get through that period. And one of those was John Higgs, whose books I'd been reading a lot of and felt I got to know by the way he talked and wrote about pop culture and Britishness and uh, mythic ideas. I just really, really enjoyed his writing. So I dropped him a line and said, would you like to come on the podcast? He said yes. We talked for a while. I thought he might pick The Beatles or James Bond uh, because he'd just written uh, Love and Let Die, a book about The Beatles and James Bond. I thought it'd be nice to have someone talk about either of those things. And he said, no, no, I'm sick of talking about those things. That's all I've thought about for the years while I was writing my book on The Beatles and James Bond. Uh, and he suggested doing classic Doctor Who, which was amazing. It is the, the you know, the British myth of the TV age. Yeah. And it, it has that, um, because nobody really invented it. There's this, there's, this, there's this long period of a few years where the BBC are going, well, we, we need a programme for Saturdays, but we should also do something for... Because the whole point of the BBC is they have to do something for everyone. Yes. But they kind of... They're not everyone. They're a very sort of set type of person, especially <laughs> sort of back in the sixties. And they very much looked down on science fiction. Yeah. You know, that was not for, that was not for you know thinking mature, civilized adults in yeah. any way, shape, or form. And so to do this program, they thought, well, we should do something. So they commissioned all this report into the state of uh, you know science fiction and what was happening into it. And all it's not like they go, oh, we'll do a comedy show. What's comedy? We'll work out what comedy is. It was this weird sort of um, hodgepodge of people feeling that they they should do this sort of thing. And then this, you know, Canadian producer, Sidney Newman, came in with this desire to, to be popular and things yeah. like that. And then you got Verity Lambert, uh, who's a very young and very, it's very rare to have a female producer at yeah. that sort of point, who was sort of given this misshapen baby you know, uh, and so do, you know, do something, do something with this. No, none of the proper producers would like, you know, yeah. this sort of nonsense on their plate. You go and deal with it. I wanted the doctor to have two sides to his personality, or more, if possible, but mainly to to be able to be authoritative, but at the same time kindly, also unpredictable, and and perhaps uncontrolled in certain ways. I suppose in the way the Doctor was almost a grown-up child. I mean, he had those kind of qualities. And certainly not, under any circumstances, part of the establishment. There's no J.K. Rowling or Arthur Conan Doyle or J.R.R. Tolkien or sort of master creator in there. Yeah, it's not authored. It's yeah. not showrun. It's, it, it seems to have organically been shaped by the weather inside Television Centre. It's yeah. eroded. <laughs> by, so as people walk backwards and forwards with files under their arm, yeah. this thing sort of takes shape. Yeah. In the it, like, a, like an act of magical creation. Like they've summoned it. It's sort of emerged from the gap between many people's minds, <laughs> essentially. Because yeah. it just it's almost like it just wanted to exist. Yes. That's how it strikes me. And that was the sort of way to sort of come on through. You're desiring in the darkness you shall find it. Don't let me talking earlier about how it just creates writers. Yes. You know, it, in terms of evolutionary sort of adaptability, to be able to create the, the very thing you need to survive is the peak, you know. 
This yeah. is this is pure evolution. This is it will the survive. Most it is an organism thing. that will survive. It will outlive us. That's for sure. We are equipped to survive. We are only interested in survival. Your death will not affect us. Russell T. Davis said that. Said that someone said, "How long do you think this is going to last?" Yeah. When, when it came back, and he said, "Look, it'll people will get bored with it. Yeah, it will get dropped the same as it was." He said, "But this is Robin Hood. Yeah, this will keep being told. We will tell this another generation of kids who were bred by my." show yes will then turn up and they'll want it back yes and that's that first two series of comfort blanket a few highlights i mean nowhere near enough because i loved all of it uh, but a few choice bits that uh, i thought would go together in a row uh thanks for listening there's more comfort blanket coming along soon and we're making another series uh but between that and now there'll be some sort of other content uh, that will exist uh, details will be following uh, thanks for everyone's support uh, everyone being saying nice things about it particularly the people who say that comfort blankets become their comfort blanket I mean that's the nicest thing what else could you want uh, and thanks to all the, 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 the friends and guests who've come on and just shared their enthusiasm for things there's something so lovely about sharing enthusiasm I was talking to Julia about it recently that usually when two people are invited on to talk about anything in culture they're arguing about it one likes it and one doesn't like it because that's the standard format for filling airtime um, it's so amazing to have a format where two people come on and just noisily agree about something so uh, thanks for listening to that and thanks for saying that you enjoy it too uh, more to come more soon thanks to you thanks to the guest it's been lovely I can't wait to do some more um, see you soon not see you hear you no I can't even hear you I'll be there near you uh, yeah <sighs> that fluff that completely Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.